This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ or sign up for our email list to stay up to date on everything we have going on. And to get the most involved, join our free Mighty Networks community to get connected with others living this restorative justice life all over the world. As far as this podcast goes, make sure you're subscribed, leave our rating and review, and share with a friend to help us further amplify this work. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. Deb, welcome to This Restorative Justice Life. Who are you? Oh, David, thank you so much for having me on this restorative justice life. Who am I? I am cisgendered white woman in America in a time where being a woman is really challenging. Mm. Who are you? I'm a mom who raised her kid in a restorative way. And am now being really taught by my kid. (laughs) Who are you? I am a partner and a daughter and friend to an incredible group of humans on this planet. Who are you? I am a person who flies a love is love flag and black lives matter and women's rights or human's rights flag right next to my American flag. Who are you? I am a person who loves to cook for people I love. Who are you? I am an, a restorative justice zealot. And finally <laughs> for now, who are you? I'm a person who loves to listen to people's stories. And it really juices the empath in me. Well, you're going to be sharing your stories. So people are going to get to practice those things, but we'll be right back to talk with Deb about all the intersections of who she is on this restorative justice journey right after that. Hey folks, I'm Elise, your producer, and I'm so excited to share this podcast with you with Deb Witzel. Deb is the host of the RJ Chronicles podcast, a collection of stories from people who have participated in restorative justice processes and how those processes have affected their lives. As a founder of Three Stories Consulting, Deb shares her nearly 20 years of RJ experience supporting people and organizations and utilizing restorative approaches to move through conflict and be more connected. You'll hear all of these major themes in this podcast, so let's get right back into it. Oh my goodness, Deb, welcome to this restorative justice life. Thank you so much for being here. You know, you're a longtime listener of the pod. And so it's great to have someone who's familiar with our work. We connected right after the NACRJ conference where, you know, I've seen your work from afar at the NACRJ conferences for the last couple of years, but your journey with restorative justice is long and you've practice in lots of different spaces. So before we get to that, it's always good to check in. So to the full extent that you want to answer the question in this moment, how are you? I am good, David. I am really living my best life right now. And today is definitely, I mean, like I'm in Colorado where the sun is shining and the streets are quiet and 
I have so much privilege in living this incredible life that I'm living. So how I am is freaking awesome. Mm, it <laughs> is is good to hear in the midst of, you know, all that's happening in the world. Like yeah. we're still finding those moments of gratitude yes. and appreciation for where we're at. But like I said, you've been doing this work for a long time and, you know, the energy that you shared in that response about like living your best life includes the way that you're doing this work. But let's go back to the beginning, maybe even before you knew the word restorative justice. How did this work get started for you? Mm. Yeah, before I knew the words, like in third grade, before I knew the words, I was one of those kids that like on the playground, if something went wrong, I would run over what's going on. Let's be friends kind of kid. And, you know, was befriending all the kids and not just the white kids that were in my neighborhood that I grew up in. And as I grew older, I started to understand like, I am by nature peacemaker, a person that wants to have connection and have it be from love. Yeah. Where did that come from for you? That's not everybody's experience. Yeah, I know. It's a funny thing. I, I wonder if it's almost inherited. (laughs) I come from, well, biologically, I come from Jewish ancestry and what I recently learned, because as an adopted person, I have just had the amazing experience of connecting with my bio mom, Mm -hmm. who is actually a lot like, or a lot alike. So that's been super cool. I almost wonder if it comes from there, although the parents I grew up with, my mom in particular, would take me into nature. And I feel like nature was kind of my first teacher of circle way and that wholeness I want in the world. And the conflicts that happened in my house, which unfortunately were kind of frequent, were places that I got to practice this sort of what's going on and how can we find some peace. Let's talk about it. Let's come together. So yeah, I think I've been doing restorative practices since I was really young. Peacemaker in my family. Yeah. You mentioned that it looked like running up on the playground and asking, you know, Hey, like, can't we be friends and all this, but like, what, like, like, what was the outcome of some of those that made you say like, Oh, this is something that I like should continue doing. Yeah. I think it was connection. I think it was, you know, running up on the playground and like connecting with people, loving people and wanting to create that bridge in a way that we could play together. And that has been a through line in all of the contexts that I've worked that has been a thing for me. Like let's connect as human beings and let's, let's speak our truth in a way that brings love and connection. Yeah. And like the other word that you said there was play. And that is how I got introduced to your work in Oakland. You facilitated session. That was the the playback, right? Where you, you are using 
aspects of theater to connect to words. It was like this machine that we all created together where somebody told their story of the way that their son was shot and killed. And as they told that story, you had us quote unquote audience members, but participants in that session, you know, pick out aspects of you know, things that resonated with us and like put motion to that. And, you know, through that play, through that activity, through that engagement, one, it's vulnerable for the person who's sharing the story. It's also vulnerable for, you know, adults to come into a space and like, kind of like act silly and like do use your body in ways that we don't typically, but the, the connection that we made with the other participants in that room, but also, you know, the person who shared their story was was something that doesn't happen through, you know, restorative dialogue or through even through circle practice, right? It, like this embodied way of engaging in this work is so important. And so like when you said play, right, playing together, a lot of times people just think about restorative justice as, you know, the repair of harm and all these things. And like, yes, that's important. But what are the ways that we're connecting right? Partially like, hey, preventing harm. So we have relationships to restore back to all of that. But even when we're engaging in repair of harm work, like how can we connect with each other on on human to human levels? Play is such a big part of that. And so like on the playground, right? Right. (laughs) That, That makes total sense. How did that manifest in like your work moving forward as an adult, right? Like theater, lots of different things that I'm sure that you've engaged in. Yeah. Well, it's cool that you you really connected the play piece because number eight, I am a goofball and I would prefer to play over anything else. I think what happened for me was I realized that play is a place where people let it down, let down their guard and and just be and get real. And so when I was considering college, my dad was like, you need to be a clinical psychologist. And I was like, oh, no, I don't. I'm not going to have anybody pay me to do that. I want to create spaces where people feel safe to laugh and cry and move and be silly and be themselves. And so I studied dance and theater in college and I was horrible at memorizing lines. (laughs) But I was great at bringing characters to life. And that's where I really learned to listen to. And so I discovered improvisational theater. And that was my jam. Because really, all it is is play. When I discovered playback theater, so that was after call, a friend of mine said, hey, you want to do this thing in Colorado? And I was like, yes. You mean we're going to go into corporate America and play? That was it. Like, I didn't really get restorative justice as a concept at that point, but I got connecting through play. And that's what we were doing. Like, we were going into businesses and corporations and addressing conflict with playback theater. And playback theater is just what you said, David. It's people telling stories from their lives. And then we as actors are reflecting that back to them through our lens, through our interpretation, but in a way that everyone in the room has an opportunity to connect to it. And 
feel in their own bodies what that experience that just got shared feels like at home in their own being. That's embodied empathy right there. Mm. And so I've been doing it for 30 years and love this work still. Yeah. And there are limits to what we can explain through an audio medium of like what that looks like but and what that process feels like. But mm-hmm. I distinctly remember the line that I connected to in that in that session in 2017 was, you know, the bullet has connected our family, right? And I mm. think like the motion that, again, terrible for an audio medium, but the motion that I made was like this, you know, like extending your hand as a bullet, but with your other hand catching it and locking fingers. And so for somebody who shot and was shot at, that action of pulling a trigger has forevermore, like connected these two families in, you know, ways that like we wouldn't wish on anyone, but what does it mean now that we're moving forward? I don't know that my particular emotion was any more resonant than anyone else's in the space with, with the woman who shared, but for me, right. As somebody who is like embodying that, it's like this harm that is caused really is not just about one person life being lost. It is, we, we are also interconnected. People who listen to the podcast know that, like, you know, I talk about all of this all the time. Values of interconnection is really what restorative justice and this yes. work is all about. And how can we highlight those both through play, both through dialogue, both through stories is just so important. And so you were doing this work in corporate America, which like, I imagine like had its challenges and it's like, like beautiful breakthrough moments. How did you formally get introduced to the word restorative justice? Formally in 2004, a friend of mine was having open heart surgery and I met Beverly title and we were talking about what we do in the world. And she said, I have a nonprofit organization called teaching peace and we do restorative justice. What's restorative justice. She explained that. And my mouth said, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, boom, I, it just every cell in my body lined up and said that that's the thing I want to do in the world. And six months later, she had a position open up in her organization that I blessedly got hired for. So in 2004, I started doing this work formally in partnership with the Longmont Police Department in Colorado. Beverly was a teacher for me in this work. Ann Rogers was another pioneer in Colorado that was a teacher for me in this work. And then I had the privilege of meeting people like Howard Zaire and Kate Pranis and the big, big deal teachers, Mark Umbright and some other folks. You know who else were the amazing teachers were the participants and the volunteers. Mm. Because I found a place where I could invite story into the room and just watch it connect people. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was a coordinator for Teaching Peace and then eventually became the executive director for Teaching Peace when Beverly left. And that was when I got to really learn about leadership from a restorative perspective. And then the people that were working in the organization with me became my great teachers, Mm -hmm. just amazing humans who are 
so good at calling the values and principles into practice for us as an organization. And we, we shifted our focus 100% to restorative and became the Longmont Community Justice Partnership at that point. Mm. And yeah, what a rich experience that was to really, you know, my goal was to create a restorative culture in the organization. And I learned so much about how hard that is and how to be called out on a regular basis when I got all, you know, leader about things. Deb also has a restorative justice podcast called the RJ Chronicles or the restorative justice chronicles that we'll be talking about. And we were just having a conversation about like what it means to do a podcast and how we do these things. Like one of the things that I struggle with specifically on this question when people are telling their stories is like, oh yeah, but this, oh yeah, but this, oh yeah, but this, like, I want to follow up on all those points. And I want to bring it back to something that you said all the way at the beginning where you were first meeting with Bev, right? How did you define restorative justice for you that made you think like, oh yeah, this is it? Oh, that is such a great question. She said, I do restorative justice and I bring people together to talk about what happened in crime situations so they can work together to make things right to the extent possible. Mm -hmm. And I think for me in those moments, in, in that moment of her talking about bringing people together to tell their stories and talk about what happened my little third grade self was like, oh my God, oh my God. And my adolescent self was like, yes, finally, we're going to talk about things. And my grown up self, who was really like, I, I had gotten a degree, a master's in nonprofit management. And I was like, what am I doing? And she had a nonprofit that all of my values and skills just kind of came together. And I was like, yeah, bringing people together to have a conversation about what happened from their hearts. We met at a a circle for a friend who was Mm -hmm. having open heart surgery. So it was no small thing that we were talking about hearts in that moment. And I think that heart connection was what it was all about. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for that. Your understanding of this work evolves, right? From totally, right? Like we're talking about like 18 years ago at this point. And we'll, we'll come back to that question at the end, as you know, but, you know, as you started to do this work engaged with the criminal legal system, and then like, engaged with community and the people that you were doing this work alongside with, like, how did your understanding of what this work meant evolve, right? Mm -hmm. Both Mm -hmm. as a practitioner of processes, of facilitating processes, and like somebody who strived to live this day-to-day in their life, but as an organizational leader. Evolution. Well, there's so many pieces to this. I think one of the things that happened for me early on was working with law enforcement and with schools. And I think working in both of those contexts, I really came to understand, and this is when I was a coordinator, 
how challenging it was for people in leadership roles, like not just leadership roles, but I'm thinking about law enforcement to take off the bulletproof vest and get real Mm. in a process because we invited law enforcement into the process and like the, I came to understand how hard it is for some humans to really open their hearts up and be real. And so I started to look at that in myself too, Mm because I feel like the things that I notice in the world are things that I need to start paying attention to in myself. And I really started to see, oh, wow. Yeah. My performance self is very accessible a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And my real self, like the heartbreak that I felt when I would pre-conference with families in their homes and hear the history, the historical trauma that they were living with and who they were that brought them to the circle. I think I started to evolve into a more vulnerable human being, a more human rather than a a professional. Because I think I started out like, I'm going to be a professional in the restorative justice world. And I am, but I think the evolution of me in this work is to recognize the thing that is most valuable in this work is to be human with others and to be vulnerable and real and bring love. That's the only word that I have for this feeling. That's so interesting because when I think about doing this work as a facilitator, I both as a teacher and as like a practitioner facilitating processes, I think a lot about the performance, right? I am, I'm a, I have a lot of skills in the world. And one of them is to be able to facilitate learning and facilitate processes like these. But when I'm facilitating learning many, 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 many times, it's rehearsed stories that I tell all the time. And as an effective storyteller, like you just know, like the thing to like, okay, now you pause here, wait for this to like have that impact. And then like, you know, that story was real, like maybe like the first through third time I said it. (laughs) And then like, like the 10th through 700th time at this point, it's just like, yep, like this is just what we do. And like, how do you how do you balance that? When I think about being real, being vulnerable, being authentic, I think there's a danger for facilitators in bringing your shit into the space where it doesn't belong, right? Like you're here to facilitate this process for these people in this time. You're not here to like get healing. Like that's the professional version of doing this. And because like the oftentimes like the people that you are facilitating for, like we're not like in day-to-day community with each other where like we're going to continue this relationship after the fact we're probably not going to continue this relationship after the fact like it's not it doesn't serve you or me for me to like share these parts of myself like how do you navigate being real in a moment versus like serving the process and saying the thing that needs to get said to like help move like this particular process along whether it's learning or like a repair process Mm. Mm. Well, I 
first I want to say, I think I've probably failed as many times as I've succeeded at that. Sure. Here are the things that come to mind for me that have been helpful. Slowing down, slowing down, slowing down in the process so that I am staying connected with my own body, with Mm. my own heart. Because I feel like if I start to get heady, like if I start to get too thinky about things, that's when I shift from being connected to people to running the show, Mm -hmm. which is where my danger zone is. Because I can get perfunctory and like pragmatic and let's move this along now. Mm -hmm. Um, Good. You said the right thing. Now you've said the right thing. Now let's, you know, and that's, that's where my danger zone is. And then, you know, I can feel in my gut when I'm working my stuff. And Mm. so if I get that feeling in my gut, I know, oh, okay. Let's take a breath. (sighs) And then I can let go of my stuff in that moment. But if I get speedy, man, I'll just run, run right over. I think there have been times where I have brought my stuff. And, you know, even saying that right now, I feel a little bit of shame. Yeah. And I mean, it happens. It's a part of like the growth and development for everyone. And so I don't want you to feel that shame. I don't get to control your feelings, but like, as, as we're having this conversation, as I'm present right now and slowing down and, you know, like asking you an authentic question, not like knowing what your response is going to be like, and now being responsive to it in the moment. As I zoom out, I think about like the way that I framed that question was more around teaching and not so much around process. Because when I think about a process where, for example, two kids got in a fight at recess, right. And like, it, like in the big scheme of things, no big deal. Like I n- broadly know the things that I need to say in order to get an apology and like have people move forward. But like what you need to do to get people to listen to each other, right. And tell stories from your life. So like in this situation, right. This kid stopped, like they were playing football and this kid like stopped throwing the ball to this kid. Cause like you were always dropping the ball, right? Like, I'm not going to pass it to you if you keep dropping the ball. And like, he like berated him and like the other kid, like, you know, started pushing and it was, it was a whole thing to be responsive in the moment to that. Right. Was me telling a story about, right. When I was like in, for me, it was basketball practice. Right. And I had a coach who like yelled at me and like all these things, like, how do you think that made me feel? And so like, well, if I was going through those things over and over, like that, like that might be a rehearsed move, right? Like that was just what was responsive to the moment. It wasn't just like, all right, but like, don't you see how like, this is going to hurt somebody's feelings. It's like, no, like, let me be authentic and, and real with, with that. And I do think like, we need to differentiate between like facilitating processes and facilitating learning. Right. Because like, when, when you're talking about like learning, of course, like it's not linear, but like, Hey, there's just material that I'm trying to get through because we have an hour and a half, two hours, whatever the, the time frame. When you're holding people in a space of causing harm and being harmed, right? There, there's a lot, there's a lot more to that. I'm not saying that like, hey, we have two hours to get this learning done is the best way to to teach, but like that is often the framework that we're given. 
I imagine you've often worked under the framework of like, hey, you have this three hours to like knock out this this conflict and like make sure that everything is like neatly tied in bow. And, you know, we want to get away from that as much as possible. But like those are in many circumstances, like the reality of like the situation, like the criminal legal system or even schools like say like, hey, solve this or like we're going a punitive route. Like and if it doesn't happen in this time frame, you know, like how are we? How are we navigating that sense of urgency? Just to go back to your your question about, you know, the performative of teaching, I think one of the things that I've learned over time, and, you know, this has been a lot of trainings that have brought me to this point, is that when I'm training, I have sort of a basket full of stories that I can sure. pull out, and I never really know which story So that's how I keep my improv self Mm -hmm. enlivened when I'm training is I'm like, okay, I don't know which story it's going to be, but here, you know, I've got the basket. And, you know, fortunately, there's a lot of experience in that I can draw from. So I think choosing the story that seems like it will connect with the people in the space is the thing that, you know, like you did with the kids, you didn't tell them a story of being in family situation. You told them the story of sports because they're playing sports ball. (laughs) So yeah, you know, it's the same for me when I'm teaching and training is like, okay, who are these people and what story will matter to them of all these stories that I've collected over the last 18 years? Yeah. Or, or before even, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that reframe for me in this moment. But the, the other thing that you said was like, you know, the slowing down. And when you worked with the, the these systems, right? Like how did you invite your partner, your system partners to like, this isn't going to be like done just like this, right? Like we, the, the criminal legal system is very good at reacting to crime and harm, like as quickly as possible, right? Not solving root harm, root causes, but like, Hey, probation for this long, right? Done. Or like, Hey, you're going to be locked up for this long or like, Hey, you have to pay this fine. Whether or not that's meeting the needs of anybody in this situation, you know, it is a quick ish response, right? When you are inviting people to participate in processes like these, how do you invite or articulate the need for that slowness? Some of the words I use are, you know, this is a human process. It's not a legal process. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to be operating in human time, which kind of slows us down. So there's space to connect. And when I'm talking to system partners, a lot of times that makes them feel so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I need to talk from my professional seat, whatever that is, law enforcement or prosecutor or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And what I assure them is their professional role will be recognized But what matters in a process is who they are as a human and how what we're doing, what we're talking about in the space resonates with them as a human. And that's a different kind of time. It's circular. It's not linear. So 
my invitation is that in the process, you join us in the circular time frame. Mm-hmm. How effective was that invitation? You know, it varied sure. with some people. I mean, that's that's like where I am now. Mm-hmm. And where I was then was, you know, with officers in particular, I would be very clear that we're going to ask you what the impacts from your professional perspective are. And I'd like to know more about this from your personal perspective. So, you know, if I knew they were a parent, then ask them, you know, this was a a kid. How does this land with you as a parent? Or if they're, I'm thinking of one case right now that we have in those days referred to as the Jerry Springer case. And there was a person who had two different lovers and those lovers found out about each other and they caused harm to each other. It was pretty significant harm. And so in that case, I asked the officer, so, you know, lover dynamics, how does this land with you as a person who might be in a romantic relationship? And so that's how we got to the human piece of that person. So again, it's really connecting it to people as human beings. And then after they make that connection, whether you know we laugh or we get tense or whatever the discomfort is of being human, then I say, and you know, what's really great is that when we tell stories like this from our lives, things can sort of feel expansive and that includes in time. So instead of talking about, you know, time, this is going to take more time than writing a ticket and going to court. So it's going to look like this. It's going to feel like this. And, you know, I think part of what people love about this work. So I can't tell you how many officer converts I had when I was working closely with law enforcement because there was an experience of human connection. Like if they sat in a process, they were like, oh good. Now I get it. Now I get why this stuff works. Yeah. I'm curious for those on these airwaves, at least from my perspective, unashamedly abolitionist in in our work, right? The police, individual police officers are humans, right? And are capable of engaging on a human to human level. And in their professional role, they're still asked to carry out a lot of harm. And so like when I think about doing this work in the context of both the criminal legal system as a whole, but specifically with people who are sworn officers of the law, there's there's an inherent tension for me. I'm and like I also know that the work that Longmont Community Justice Partnership and other initiatives like this around the country, like that that has been like really harm reductive. It's helped people like disengage from the system in some ways. I'm curious how this partnership came to be, the ways that you saw it work well, and like maybe some of the shortcomings. I think what it's so funny because you said sworn officers and 
there's this little part of me that got so triggered because, you know, true confessions, I was a probation officer. I was Mm -hmm. a sworn officer of the probation department at the 20th judicial district in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm walking into that context knowing after working with law enforcement, after working for the state judicial office, the state court administrator's office, just how oppressive the system is. And consequently, I mean, I don't know about consequently, but equally the humans who occupy seats in those systems behave in that way. So when I stepped into, I I should have said number nine of who I am is an idealist. And so I stepped into that sworn officer, sworn probation officer role as an idealist thinking, I'm going to bring the restorative values and principles to this context. And I'm going to make change. We're going to have a restorative culture. Well, I was a supervisor of probation officers and I spent a lot of my life force trying to help them shift from the role of probation officer. And what I learned is that the role, the sworn officer thing is protection, is like body, it is like armor around the human and like supporting people and in taking that off and listening to their clients from a human perspective sometimes was so hard. Like they just, some folks really use the position to, and and, you know, I know you, I know your work to hold the supremacy seat. And I, I think, like you said, there are some humans that find their way and are willing to interact as human beings and to really hold the relationship and respect and hold themselves accountable and be a model for responsibility. And then there's space for reciprocity. Mm -hmm. And then there really are some humans for whom they are in that role because the role protects them from having to be uncomfortable and vulnerable. And I will just tell you after five years in that role, my soul was dying. I couldn't do it anymore. And I really had to walk away and regroup and figure out if and how there is another way. Because like you said, the criminal legal system is built on a premise of supremacy. And I really, at this point, after a career in partnership and deep in the criminal legal system. I I don't know, David, I don't know if, if it can be done. And I really believe there are so many good human beings in those roles that 
you know, there are moments that I can remember training and coaching people that like the sweetness of them as a human came through and, and their relationships with the people they were working with came through and they were wildly successful. And then someone else would come along and they'd snap back. They'd snap back to shut into the role. I just really hope and pray that humans who are living in those cages (laughs) on all the levels can find their way beyond. I'm just really feeling the pain of it. There's just so much healing that needs to happen around it. And I just don't think the way that it's designed right now, there's space for that healing. The follow-up question from that is like, okay, so like, how do we design it? But right. <laughs> that's like a whole nother episode that like that in, in some ways, like that's a reformist question, which like, I don't think that. And of course, like there are reformist reforms and like revolutionary reforms or abolitionist reforms, right? If we're giving more power to these systems to, you know, in, in hopes that they're going to do something better. Like, I don't think that's a, <laughs> I don't think that's a great idea or a great use of time and resources because over the history of this country and the history of policing and the history of like the criminal legal system, at least in America and in many other places, right? It is about control, supremacy, domination, right? To do something different, I think like is a lot more micro and like is happening on like hyper local levels. And to build that culture is the work of generations, right? What is the actual end goal for like Amplify Our Day's work? Because like right now, I think it's just capacity building, Mm. right? And, And like capacity building to be this way, to know these practices, like that is helpful, but like capacity building for capacity building sake, isn't it right. But what we really want people to be able to do is be this way with their neighbors, right. Be this way in community, be this way with like, and I think like we're using, we spend a lot of our time focusing on like this work in schools, because as much as we talk about the criminal legal system as a place where folks are asked to like dehumanize themselves to like do a job. Like teachers are often asked to dehumanize themselves to like teach, control behavior, get test scores, right? Like if we're, if we're honest about like the structure of education in this country, like a lot of it is just like, Hey, how do we create workers for this capitalist machine to continue on and on? And, you know, so many folks who I've encountered both as a student growing up as a person who has is friends with a lot of teachers and a person who does a lot of work with teachers. Like most people don't go into the teaching profession. Just like, yes, I am here to build capitalist cogs in the machine. Just like most people who go into law enforcement aren't like, yes, I'm here to control the bodies of black and brown people and like force them and subjugate them into like, like they don't do that for those reasons. But that is the way that the system is set up. And so like by your, by doing your job and doing your job well, you are upholding those things. And, you know, the conversation that I was having with Des Moines yesterday was like, yes, the system has limits, uh, puts limitations on you if you want to stay employed, but you also have a choice as a human, right? Like how you will engage and, you know, at what risk, you know, no matter the consequences. And like, I'm not here to say like what any 
person should do in their specific role. I'm not telling anybody to quit their job. There are lots of people who I think should quit their job. And then like, there's the question of like, damn, well, then who's going to fill those positions? Probably people who are like, like not as well-equipped, like training wise, but also like spiritually, mentally as a person, emotionally as a person, like coming into those roles where it's like, you know, what do we do in that interim? And so like, that's where I fall back on like our role right now is capacity building, but there has to be like this, this bigger vision for like the thing that is, is different, you know, in, in the interim, right. Is, is where we're at right now. And I I like to think about Miriam Kaba's words and the words of others, right. About like, it's not just one thing that's going to solve all this. I think her framing is like a million different experiments, right. Where there are people in community who are building these alternatives, right? Abolition is not just about dismantling systems of oppression, it's about building the alternatives. Um, and like, if you want to learn how to like build capacity for that, Amplifier <laughs> like offers all these trainings and a community for you all to continue to engage in blah, 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 commercial link in the show notes. But <laughs> it, it is about not just like the learning, the practice. And so uh, we, we talked about the limitations of doing this work. I'm curious where you have seen hope and like fully acknowledging you said that you're living your best life now outside of being employed by those systems <laughs> where's the hope million different experiments improv has taught me the yes and way in the world and so i think you know my idealist self went into the probation world really believing that i could i could bring the restorative values and principles into probation practices. And I feel like there is a yes. And I I feel like I was able to do that. Like probably the majority of the clients that I worked with clients being the technical term in the context, the humans that I worked with, I feel like we did restorative work together. Like we built relationship. It was rooted in respect. And we really learned to take responsibility for our own actions together and to be real with each other and to reciprocate the possibility for better lives. So that's for me a place where the hope is. For the people that I trained and worked with, and I, you know, the truth is, let me also confess this, that I'm contracting back to probation from the outside to support restorative justice practices continuing at the level that they can. So what that looks like is making the invitation to people who have been harmed to, you know, if they want to have a conversation or a process of some kind with the people who caused the harm for them, then I and the volunteers and staff that I work with will do everything we can to make that possible. Similarly, with the people who've caused harm, like if there's a part of them that wants a restorative process within their humanness, then we will do everything we can to make that happen with them. So that's another little glimmer of hope. Like, yes, the system is oppressive, the system causing harm, 
the system still exists. And there's this little experiment that we could do together and create some connection and some heart. So there's some hope there. And I think the other thing, and this comes around to your role really, is that the biggest hope for me is with young people and instilling these values and principles with young people and watching them go, you know, wait, what do you mean? No, we're, we had a conversation and we're good. Watching my daughter that I, when I discovered restorative in its formal capacity, she was 10. So she wanted to get trained and we worked to rate, have a restorative household. And she schooled me regularly on being a restorative parent. And that's where the hope is for me. Like watching who she is in the world now as a young adult, I'm like, yes. So it's back to that generations thing that you were talking about. Yes, it's going to take generations. But when I see a young person who's been exposed to this way in the world, demand that this is the first and the primary way that we address conflict. I'm like, yes, yes. Yeah. You know, I, I love that. And I want to come back to that parenting piece, but I I think like there is going back to like the work that you are now doing, like inside of probation or like from the outside supporting, right? Like, I think there's like a, like there's a restorative justice in the workplace model that like, I think everybody should have. And again, if you want to engage in those work, that works with Amplify RJ, like holla at your boy, most likely Des Moines, but <laughs> coming to support. But, you know, we, we do that work and, you know, support organizations, not just schools in doing this work, right? That's, that's an important piece because as much as schools are places where kids go to learn as much as probation offices where you serve people who are on probation. Like there's also workplaces and like, you know, you talked about like trying to be a restorative supervisor and like connecting on a human level with like the people that you work with on a day-to-day basis. Like that's important. I think like the, I think you can like make an argument that when we're doing this work in schools and like helping schools be quote unquote restorative, like that's flawed too, because like schools as they're built weren't made to be that way and won't be that way. I fully acknowledge that, but I think it's easier to make the connection for the humans involved when it's that it's about like preparing humans to be the best that they can in the world. than like someone who like signed up for a job that was like, quote unquote, protect and serve by like controlling people's behavior. So like, so there's that piece, like there is a need for like this as like we need this ethic in our workplace and however that manifests in like the actual job that we do, like you know, that that's important. But when you talk about like parenting as a parent of a four month old, right. At the, at the time of this recording, I think a lot about that because there, there are not a lot of ways that you can have a conversation with like this, like four month old sleep thief about like, look, <laughs> right. I'm You're trying. <laughs> yeah. Like you, like, do you understand the harm of like, <laughs> you like, <laughs> like, Hey, we just fed you. And right. like, 
it is like at, at midnight and now it's like one like I know you're not hungry but like you just want to be on the breast right now for comfort and like that's great but like your mom needs to sleep like you're in order to be like the best way that she can be in the world with you tomorrow and with the people that she works with and like with me on a day to day basis you can't have that conversation with a four month old right <laughs> it's just like love compassion and like oh my gosh like you know what and you need yeah like all parents have have been there but like as as they get older right I'm curious, like some of the ways that you've been school. Well, I guess like, how did you introduce this to your like 10 year old, right? I'm doing this. I hope to be doing this from jump. How did you introduce this to your 10 year old? And what are some of the ways that you've been schooled? Oh God. Well, so when I was first, you know, I told the story about talking to Beverly, I was so excited and I came home and, you know, shared the story of what it was and, Hannah is my daughter's name was like, wow, mom, that sounds really cool. You're very excited about this. And so I had this incredible support as a single mom. She was like, yeah, do it, mom, do it. Mm -hmm. And so when I landed it, landed the job, I said, okay, so let's practice this at home. So, and then, you know, basically talked about what the values are and the principles are. And then she chose to get trained so that she could be a community member. And that's when she really got it. That's when she was like, oh, right. So this can be used in all kinds of situations. So, you know, we would have restorative conversations if tours weren't done or if we made agreements and those agreements got broken. So you will soon find out as a parent that agreements get broken. Like you may say, we're going to do this thing. And then life circumstances have you not do that thing, Mm -hmm. but your child will not be cool with that. Yeah. And so, you know, from, I can think of, well, here's an example for me. Hannah's chore was to do dishes. And she is not a fan of doing dishes, although she had agreed. I feel you. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Although she had agreed that that would be her chore because she probably hated all the rest of them more. And so when she would not do dishes, we would, I would say, hey, you know, the agreement is that this is your responsibility and you have broken the agreement. So that is causing harm for me, you know, explaining, you know, walking our way through it, that's causing harm because now the plates are in the sink instead of ready for more food. What can we do to make this right? Well, I can just wash the dishes, I guess. Great. That'd be awesome. That'd be a great repair. So, you know, that's a simple version. A schooled version is me getting my, my bossy pants mom on the because I said so version of parenting Mm -hmm. and Hannah saying the way you're talking to me right now feels really disrespectful and me having to go whoa you're right I actually was being disrespectful and I'm really sorry about that I would like to do better Can you help me figure out what the words and way would be 
so that you know how much I love and respect you. And then working through that together to get to recognition of, you know, what triggered me, you know, me as an adult doing the recognition of what triggered me so that I got, you know, just ah, with her and her, because this is the way that we had relationship saying to me, no, you can't treat me like that. Mm. So, you know, that's a, that's another example. And she could probably recount a whole lot more because she's young and has a great memory. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, I think that's a beautiful way to highlight like that. It goes both ways, yeah, right? Totally. It, it's, it's an invitation to your relationship. And like when we're saying that we're going to uphold these values, it's not just like that we're enforcing these values and imposing these values on, on others. It's like, if you're going to be about this, like you're accountable to this and like the, the invitation, like both as like a leader in an organization or as like the leader of like the family organization, right? Like you're accountable to, to be this way. And like, you have to invite people to, to call you on your BS. And, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to adapt to like defensiveness is real denial. Like, I didn't mean it like that. Like, or like the gaslighting, like that we can easily fall back into, right. Is, is, is so real, but like to live like this restorative justice life, right means that we are doing this work actively to make sure that, you know, harm is addressed in, yeah. in, in a good way. And we can repair that relationship. It's not ignored. It's not belittled, right? It's not being perpetuated. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing that's so important is to remember that we are going to mess up. Like we're Practitioners, humans. not perfectionists. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I cause harm mm-hmm. and the thing that I make really clear, no matter what my role is in a space is that I welcome the feedback. I welcome being called out if I'm not living by my values and principles, because that's what I want in the world. That's what I want to be doing. And I, in relationship with you, I want you to tell me, no, 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 no. You, you just caused harm. And that calls me in back in, right. That says, oh, Thank you. I really want to do what I can to learn from this, to grow and be a better human. So thank you. Let's talk about what happened. We've talked about like the work that you've done across a lot of different sectors, but you know, you've talked about like living your best life. Now it's a lot of like more creative storytelling things. What do you have going on that's filling your soul now? So right now I have the amazing privilege of working with Modus Theater. They're a local company, a theater company that does original works that are often derived from the stories of people's lives. And I'm really excited to talk about power playback. So Modus came into the the restorative justice world in 2019, when I reached out to Kirsten Wilson, a friend of mine, playback colleague, player, and artistic director of Modus Theater. She did the docu monologues, which were stunning. They're so amazing. And I was like, oh, we could do that same format with formerly incarcerated people who have had an experience with the criminal legal system and restorative in some way. And so Kirsten agreed to do that project. And 
there are some amazing monologues with the Just Us monologues and the Boundless Truth monologues. But from that emerged the possibility of power playback. And Kirsten is developing a group of playback actors who much better represent the demographics of our community. She's inviting folks from her undocumented project. She's inviting folks from the formerly incarcerated projects. She's inviting people to learn this form of theater to really broaden the audience, which has been largely white and privileged for a long time, and to bring it in, to bring the forms, the playback forms into communities where we can start to hear these stories, again, coming back to play, right? Hear these stories on a community building, heart impactful level. So I'm super excited about the work of Power Playback within the context of Modus Theater. And then the other thing that I'm brand new to and super excited about is the Restorative Justice Chronicles podcast that I just completed my first interview with a survivor and the person who murdered her son and their experience in a restorative justice process together. And it's so freaking inspiring. I'm just really privileged and honored to have heard the story and to be bringing it to the pod world so that people, my hope is that more people will hear about restorative justice practices and go, oh no, that's what I want. And then the other thing that I'm super excited about is developing a community-based holistic restorative response to domestic violence, to intimate partner violence in our community. And that is through bringing, again, bringing together circles of people with lived experience who have learned and grown to, and, and bringing in the creative process to move toward the possibility of my, my big dream is healing the family. So, you know, like you were talking about a little bit ago, it's about building capacity and So yeah, those are the three big, super exciting things going on. Thank you for asking that. Absolutely. And, you know, for folks in podcast land, link to all that in the show notes, Modus Theater will also be linked. Is there a project, is there like a place where people can go to support that restorative responses to domestic violence piece or is that still in development? It's still in development. Yeah. So you can go to three stories consulting, which is my, that's my business organization. And that's where I'm going to be putting all of the information about the, the DVRJ project. Yeah. And so all of that will be linked in the show notes for people to tap in. Very excited to have another podcast in this landscape talking about these ideas because to your point, right, people need to know. And like, I think the beauty of podcasts for those of you who are listening, like if something on here resonated with you, hey, share this with a friend, like, like, hey, like this restorative justice thing has been really helpful in my life. Or like, I think that this would resonate for you in this kind of way. We always say like, you know, like comment or 
review, right? But like the thing that is most powerful is if like in your podcast player, there's probably a share button, just like hit that share button and send this text to a friend. It's like, Hey, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. That's how we one continue to grow this podcast, but really it's about growing this work. So we have these communities where people have the capacity to engage in this work of living into our values of interconnection, right? Both repairing harm and building relationships rooted in equity and trust to prevent harm and to help us have something to restore back to. Oh my gosh, so much, so much. But before we go, it's time for the questions that everybody answers when they come on here. We alluded to like what you initially thought about restorative justice, but like in your own words now, how do you find the terms? Restorative justice practices are a way for human beings to connect and heal. As you've been doing this work, what's been an oh shit moment? And what did you learn from it? Uh, okay, facilitating learning. We were talking about that earlier. So I had the great privilege to work with law students this summer. And there was a moment in the class that I was teaching the values and principles of restorative justice. And out of my mouth were com- was coming the words that the criminal legal system really isn't a place where this work is going to work. <laughs> and I had to like say, unless humans like you who are curious and learning this work really bring it. Yeah. So, you know, one of those human moments where I'm like, this, I'm, this is, I'm so disillusioned with the criminal legal system. And then realizing, oh, you're actually teaching people who are going to be working in the criminal legal system right now. Yeah. So, you know, there it is. And they were amazing. What an incredible group of future people working in the criminal legal system. So yeah. more hope. <laughs> I, I imagine all the time about like, as much so part of prison abolition criminal legal system abolition is like people need jobs people who have been employed doing this work need jobs and what are the things that we can divert them to (laughs) right how do we pour resources into those things that actually like keep communities safe both for people who are officers and other people who play roles in the infrastructure of the criminal legal system lawyers in this example lots of other things as as we can imagine and i think like there's immense possibility and like probably not the thing to tell law students (laughs) who are like however many thousands of dollars in debt at that point being invested in like maybe like generously people who are probably taking your class were like hey like about like dismantling um these systems of oppression like and doing that reform work from the inside like which i think is like aspirational (laughs) idealistic and, and flawed but like I'd rather have that person than, than somebody else. Yeah. But like, you know, like helping people like imagine the thing that is different where we could, and I'm not saying that everybody has to like start a podcast and run an organization dedicated to teaching restorative justice, but like, what are the things in your neighborhood that would prevent domestic violence, right? If you're somebody who went into the criminal legal system, who is saying that like, you know, like, I want to make sure that women and children are protected, right? Like 
being a lawyer and prosecuting people probably isn't the most effective way to do that. I'm someone who wants to keep our streets safe and eliminate gun violence. Great. Locking up people who shoot like is not the most effective way to do that. Like what are the other things that are rooted in community giving one, I think it's just so much about like massive redistribution of resources, but like I was reading this article and I think I might've mentioned it on the podcast before, but like the thing that like stopped violence in a particular neighborhood here in LA was like, they opened a taco truck. Right. And like, it's a place for food. It's a place that was now well lit in, in like a hot spot of like violent activity. Right. Like, and you know, community people are just involved. And so like, Hey, if you want to stop crime and violence in your uh, community, like what is the thing that you can put in place instead of like disincentivize people with like punishment? So much possibility. Long tangent on such a like short answer. We have a (laughs) a handful of other questions to go. You get to sit in circle with four people, living or dead. Who are they? And what is the question that you ask that circle? Maya Angelou. Martin Luther King, can my biological ancestors be one? Okay. And this one's going to throw you for a loop, Adolf Hitler. Right. And what is the question that you would ask the circle? What do you need? What do we need as humans to connect through love for peace and freedom? I think you know what's coming, but Deb, (laughs) what do we need as humans to connect do love for peace and freedom. We need to come together and have conversations, real conversations from our heart, feeling our guts, staying embodied and ask for what we need. How do you think, I imagine the ways that like maybe Maya Angelou or (laughs) Dr. King would respond to that. What kind of response are you hoping to get from Hitler? You know, the reason that I thought about him is because I feel like he is someone who has caused such immense harm. And like, I know in my ancestral line, Mm -hmm. there is harm caused by him. And I would want him to think about that. Like, I have a feeling that he had his own historical harm and I always believe the best in a person and that there is the possibility for empathy and love. The capacity is there. Mm -hmm. So my fantasy, since it's a fantasy is that he would be able to hear the responses from others and be touched in inside and be able to find a place of love and connection within himself that could be healed. And you want to know the rest of the fantasy? Sure. Is that that healing would lead to healing all the way forward and all the way back. I'm fighting like the cynical urge in me to like, say, like go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, <laughs> I like ultimate white supremacist, right? Like, I mean, I think it's like the balance of like honoring, like honoring your response to the question, because like that was your response to the question and like, yeah, Deb, but be real. (laughs) Right. Like, like what, like, and like that, 
particularly isn't the energy that I hold, but I think like we touched on this in the episode with Kathy Bankett and like there were some things that like that got left on the cutting room floor and part of the things that we had in the conversation following up. But like when we're talking about harm on that scale, it's not that like someone is irredeemable, like theoretically, but like they've chosen a pattern of behavior so often that like what is what is the redemption right like what is what is the healing like the healing for most people in the world is that like you just go away forever (laughs) and in his case all it was was death like that was the only way that he could go away forever but look at the the harm and the people who still follow those hideous heinous beliefs in my little bubble of life experience and Mm -hmm. understanding of of history and the current heinousness of white supremacy, like few humans have had such a horrendous influence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, chances are the dude was a psychopath and there wouldn't, you know, he's in that 1% that really we, we might not be able to reach. Mm-hmm. However, if, And again, it's my fantasy world, right? So if someone were able to represent and be the model for things that he didn't believe and were possible, like those two, Maya Angelou and Martin Luther King embodied beauty and love and story and possibility in such magnificent ways. And, you know, I don't know my biological ancestors, Mm -hmm. but I believe because of who I am in the world that somehow I inherited this passion for play and love and connection and a belief in the possibility for getting our needs met through human connection. So all of us together in the space with someone who clearly doesn't have that experience, clearly doesn't know, like could having the experience And sitting in the presence of such magnanimous power, not be influenced, impacted, changed by that experience. Mm -hmm. So I got to believe, David, that's why I added him to the mix, because I I believe in change. I believe in change. Yeah. And like, I don't think I'm as cynical as I... I come off as I might've come off in this moment. I think like as somebody who believes in this work, like I think you have to like have some level of optimism and hope. I also don't spend a lot of energy thinking about like, how do we get Donald Trump into a circle? Right. Because like, that's just not going to (laughs) happen. Right. 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 And so like, I like, what are the, what are the other inroads? Like when we're thinking about like capacity building where we can do this, but fantasy, thank you for engaging. As we're, as we're starting to close our time together, what is something, a mantra or affirmation maybe that you want everyone listening to know? Yes. And yes. And (laughs) yeah. 
and I'm going to say more about yes. And because I, I think yes. And has been the thing that has helped me influence the harder edged folks into considering the possibility of restorative to participating in restorative, like meeting resistance with yes. And has served me so well in my years. So when you're in that moment, when you're like, ah, how can you say no? Or how can you be like that? If we can settle into yes, and I'm a human being, you're a human being. Let's see how we can connect. Then I think it's a better world. I think for me, the yes and is like, yes. Also, like I used to think that way too. It's a way to like tell your story about like the impact that this has on you. Like, I feel you like restorative. What? Right. No, like I think like really clearly and like this was the mind of a six-year-old right in California, like three strikes rule like oh no it just makes sense like you had like three chances to like get your act together life in prison right and like and this was like my dad having a conversation with me about like voting because like you know that's what you do with your six-year-old when it's time to vote or at least that's what you know my dad did but you know like thinking through like the reasons that like people might quote-unquote re-offend right and like telling those stories right mm-hmm. it is how we how we shift hearts and minds, make change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of this, all of this is circular. Yes. Beautiful. You, you told me before we started recording. So I'm going to ask you to tell me again, unless you've got someone else in mind, who's one person that I should have on the podcast. And I already know you're going to do it, but you got to help me get them on. <laughs> you know, I will. So yeah, I talked about Modus Theater. I talked about the Just Us Project. And Joaquin Mobley is an amazing human being and I think he would be incredible on the show. And I will absolutely get you in touch with each other. Hey, beautiful. And then finally, we mentioned it before, but how can people support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported? Well, I would love for people when I get the next episode of the Restorative Justice Chronicles out into the world, I'd love for people to listen to the Restorative Justice Chronicles. I would love for people to check out threestoriesconsulting.com and sort of stay in touch with me that way. My projects will always be listed on the website. So, and then feel free to reach out to me. I'm always interested in a conversation with another human. Beautiful. Well, all the ways to do that will be linked in the show notes. Deb, thank you so much for sharing your stories, your time, your wisdom on these airwaves. Please, please, please follow up and check out the Restorative Justice Chronicles. And we'll be back with another story of somebody living this restorative justice life next week. Until then, take care. Thank you, Deb, for all that you had to offer. I loved this episode, and I thought it really challenged the way that we think how people can change and the capacity to which people can change. It's important to believe in people and invest in people, because that is who restorative justice is about, who is for. 
what constitutes humanity and how can we pull out the humanity in others even when they don't feel it themselves. I am also a little bit of a theater kid at heart and so I really loved her connections to theater and creation and I think it's really important to remember that um, creativity and restorative justice are linked because restorative justice allows for the freedom of your own mind and interconnectedness with your own thoughts and and emotions and other people and empathy and theater really brings that out and I love that she was able to connect that with the idea of improv. Every day is improving. Every day you wake up and you are trying something new, you're putting yourself out there in a new situation. I think it's important to treat life like improv. We can't just settle into a mundane same show every single time. We need to treat every morning like it's a new improv show and you have the agency to change what happens in your day. As always, thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you next week. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. Or if you're old school, tell a friend. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, signing up for a community gathering, workshop, or course. So many options. Links to everything in the show notes. Or on our website, amplifyrj.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.